Our teaching series this summer is from the New Testament book of Galatians, and today we're in chapter 2, and we're going to be once again hearing from the Apostle Paul about finding freedom and salvation in Jesus Christ. I remember very clearly, it was a Friday evening at Vacation Bible School when I was 10 years old that I responded to the tug of God on my heart and asked Jesus to come into my life and be my Savior. Um, Some of you who are here today may remember a time in your life uh, when you too felt God drawing you to himself and responded, and you know what it's like to feel that burden of sin lifted and uh, on with uh, a new life that Christ offers. Well, in essence, the message of the Apostle Paul in today's lessons from uh, Galatians 2 is exactly that. And uh, are we made right with God by all the stuff we do Uh, Are we made right with God by living a good life, or is salvation a gift of God that we don't have to earn, we don't have to work for, or is it by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ? And we'll find out more about that in just a few moments. As we've done some other weeks, there's some some words sometimes in the New Testament that uh, I'm not sure all of us understand what the meaning of those words are. There's some I've had to look up, and today we've added two words as key words to the list. The first word is condemnation, to declare something wrong, to condemn, to judge. And the second word is righteous, which is meaning that we are justified, made right with God by God's law, We are holy in heart and life. And uh, so you'll hear those two words come through in the message today. Some of you uh, will also see around the church building today um, the setup for Vacation Bible School that starts tomorrow. And we'll hear um, more about that a little bit later in the service. But several hundred children and youth and adults will be filling all of this space over the next four days. And uh, God always shows up. And uh, we have a great time, and uh, so uh, I hope that you will be praying for all of that uh, that's going to be happening across the next several days as well. Let's give this day to God in prayer, shall we? Pray with me. God of majesty, God of mystery, you are beyond our understanding. And today we honor you as creator, for by your word all things visible and invisible came to be. We honor you as Savior and Lord, for by your Son all humanity has the opportunity to receive eternal life. And we honor you as the sustaining Spirit, for by your holy presence we are empowered to live as Christ lived. So hear our prayer today to honor you, to worship you, and to receive the joy of your Spirit, with which you want to fill our lives and give us hope for the living of these days. And we pray it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I'd like to begin this message this morning with a statement that is a statement of a problem that is faced by the entire human race. It's a problem so fundamental that it's the root of most of the other problems that we have And stated in one sentence, it goes like this. God is righteous, and we are not. Now, there are many other ways that we can say that, but it all ends up in the same place. God is holy, and we are not. God is perfect, and we are not. God is pure, and we are not. God is just, 
and we are not. God is perfect love, and we are not. God is always good, and we are not. This is the human predicament. Something separates us from a perfect and holy and just God. And deep in our hearts, we know that to be true. If you doubt my words, just pick up the newspaper and any day of the week, and as I did one day, and these were all the top stories. Five people found dead in an Arizona home of apparent murder-suicide. A daughter aged 12 who killed herself because she was being bullied at school. Another public leader convicted of bribery, fraud, and perjury. A gunman who massacred at least 43 aboard a bus carrying Shiites in Pakistan. You get the picture. Something has gone wrong in our world. And even if we don't know what it is, we know that things aren't the way they ought to be. In June of 2001, a man by the name of Timothy McVeigh was executed for the brutal murder of 168 people and more than 600 more who were injured when he bombed the federal building in Oklahoma City. Do we need any further proof that something has gone wrong in the universe? I suppose the easy answer is to suggest that Timothy McVeigh was somehow different than the rest of us, that he fits into a different category from all of us who are pretty certain that we would never do what he did. But we shouldn't be so quick to acquit ourselves playing the I would never do that game, this dangerous business. Who can say what we might or might not do under a particular set of circumstances? I agree that what Timothy McVeigh did was a heinous crime and that he truly deserved to be punished for his actions. I'm also glad that he confessed to that crime so that we don't have to hear endless speculation about uh, how the authorities got it wrong. But the larger point remains open for discussion. A few days before his execution, Newsweek magazine offered a cover story on the roots of evil in our culture using the McVeigh case as a takeoff point. And they wondered, how was it that an intellectual man from a stable family ended up committing such a horrific crime? This time, we can't blame video games or Satan worship or some of the other popular explanations. Was he crazy? Apparently not, in a clinical sense. Was he demon-possessed? Well, it's hard to spot some of the usual markers that might lead us to that conclusion. No doubt, in McVeigh's case, it was a combination of factors, including an incredible distrust of government, fueled by some sort of inner rage that led to the worst act to date of domestic terrorism by an American in our nation's history. The danger in studying the particulars too closely is that it may lead us to conclude that Timothy McVeigh was special in a negative sense, that he was some sort of human aberration, a toxic DNA that, we, that would be better removed from the human race. But to think of him that way is to make two mistakes. First, we dehumanize a person who was created by God and made in God's image. He became less human than the rest of us, perhaps, when he decided to drive a truck bomb into the federal building and therefore easier to hate. And secondly, we end up putting ourselves in a better or higher category by comparison. Put simply, we believe we aren't like him. But that conclusion runs counter to the biblical teaching of Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that says to us, every one of us has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. 
Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 reminds us that the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who knows how bad it is? You see, the greatest deceit is always self-deceit. We trick ourselves into thinking that we're not as bad as we're not as bad as we are. And the easiest way to do that is to compare ourselves with someone who is in our judgment far worse. All of that may seem like a digression, but when we come face to face with evil, we see the depth of the human predicament. We live in a universe where fanatics tape bombs to their chests and walk into shopping malls. We live in a universe where people blow themselves up, randomly open fire on a crowd of innocent people. We saw that again this week. It's not something that just happens in other parts of the world. It can happen anywhere. Something has gone wrong between us and God because God is holy and we are not. There's this vast chasm between us and God is on one side and the human race on the other. We can call it a chasm, a mountain, a wall, but in effect, it's all the same. Our sin truly and profoundly and completely separates us from God. Everything God is, we are not. And what we are, God is not. Instead of harmony, there is friction. Instead of friendship, there is hostility. And by nature, the whole human race is under judgment from God and separated from him because of our sin. Now, if you doubt the truth of what I've just said, take a good look at the person in the mirror. Study the image that you're looking at. What about the man or woman that you see? Are you holy? Are you righteous? Are you pure? Are you perfect in all of your ways? Are you without sin in all that you do? Are you honest? If we are truly looking at ourselves, we have to say no. So what can we do about the great gulf that stands between us and God? On our own, there are many things that we try try to do. We can try to bridge that gap by religion, uh, by self-effort, by good works, by acts of charity, by extraordinary personal sacrifice. We may hope against hope that the gap between us and God is not all that big in the end, and our good works will somehow get us into heaven. But if that's what we think, we're in for a rude awakening. As for Timothy McVeigh, he he called himself an agnostic, proclaiming, if I'm going to hell, then I'm going to have a lot of company there. He also said that if there is an afterlife, he would improvise, he would adapt, he would overcome. Now, I don't care to speculate about anyone's eternal destiny, but it seems that the time to improvise and adapt and to overcome would be while we were still alive. We've waited too long if we waited till we're gone. However, the good news of the gospel is this. God has taken it upon himself to do something about this gap that stands between him and all of humanity. What we could not do, he did in the person of Jesus Christ. The story of how he did this is wrapped up in a technical theological term called justification. That's what our text is all about today. It tells us how God took the initiative to save us. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, we read, You and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles, yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. We have believed in in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. 
The great reformer, Martin Luther, called justification the chief doctrine of the Christian faith. And it's so important, he said, that if we don't understand this doctrine, we really don't understand Christianity at all. We could be right about many other doctrines, many other things, such as the deity of Christ, the Trinity, the work of the Holy Spirit. But if we're wrong about this one doctrine, we are wrong at the very center of the Christian faith. And no amount of being right anywhere else can make up for being wrong at the center. Luther went on to say that justification by faith alone is so important that we must believe it and teach it to others, and in his words, beat it into their heads continually. Galatians 2, chapter 16 is one of the most important verses in the New Testament. And if you read it slowly and carefully, you discover that several words are repeated here. Paul mentions the word faith or belief three times, made right with God or justified three times, and the law three times. In fact, this verse, which is packed with dense theological truth, actually says the same thing three times. And Paul repeats himself so that we don't miss the basic truth. He wants to make one point and one point only, and that is we are made right with God through our faith in Jesus Christ, and that is apart from any works of any kind. The word justify means to make righteous. It refers to a verdict from the judge that allows a defendant to go free. It means that the defendant is declared not guilty, innocent of all charges, and there is no record in the eyes of the law. If we are justified, our record is clear, it's clean, and we are free to go. To be justified is the opposite of being condemned. Now, if you apply this truth to the spiritual realm, it looks like this. Justification is the act of God where God acquits guilty sinners. That is, he declares us innocent on the basis of the death of Christ. And this gift of justification is based solely on faith apart from any works of any kind. Justified sinners are people who are pardoned, they're acquitted, they're set free, accepted by God, and treated as being in a right relationship with the God of the universe. Maybe an illustration will help. A person on death row will often file an appeal, seeking a stay of execution or at least a reprieve. That simply means that the person's attorney has asked the judge for more time to consider evidence that might change the person's conviction or at least the sentence. The real goal may not be simply uh, the stay of execution, but to have the sentence reduced or commuted to life imprisonment. It's not an argument that the person wasn't guilty or even asking for the sentence to be overturned. It is a delay so that the sentence might be reduced later. Now compare that to justification. When God justifies us, he doesn't just simply delay our punishment. He doesn't reduce the punishment. When God justifies a person who has sinned, he removes the punishment altogether. That's why in Romans 8, chapter, uh, verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, it says, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Justification means that we're declared not guilty in the eyes of God. God gives us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's a pure miracle of God's grace. Guilty sinners are forgiven, we're pardoned, we're declared righteous while we are still guilty, but it's on the basis of Christ's death on the cross. And this amazing gift comes to anyone who will receive it by faith without trying to earn it or work for it. Verse 16, three times says that we are not justified by the works of the law. It means that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves or to help ourselves. The Judaizers of Paul's day didn't believe that. They proclaimed that salvation was hard work. 
You've got to work at it all of your life if you want to go to heaven when you die. You've got to keep the law, including the Ten Commandments, in order to be saved. And this is what Paul's arguing against. A month or so ago, high school students, college students, were rushing to make sure they finished all their work by the end of the semester. I can remember many times when I came to that last week of the semester with a ton of stuff still to do. Quizzes to take or homework assignments to make up or papers to write or books to read, not to mention studying for the final exam. And you know that if you have to do it or you're not going to pass the course or you're not going to graduate on time. But it's easy under pressure, I think, to say to ourselves, maybe the teacher didn't mean all of that. Maybe she'll let me slide if I can only make up part of the homework or skip one of the papers or read one of the five books. Actually, I tried that my last semester in seminary. I was doing an independent study in a church history class, and I thought that I had not read all the five books, and I thought by the end of that semester, the professor would have forgotten. And he would put that grade on the, uh, in the grade book, and I would be skating home free. But it didn't work. He did remember, and I had to end up reading the books and writing the paper that went with it. But a lot of us approach God with that same kind of attitude. We think to ourselves, God really doesn't mean this. And we hope that when we die, God will look at us and say, you know, you've been a real rascal, but you can come in anyhow. We hope that we have done just enough in life to convince God to take us to heaven. But you know, that strategy didn't work with my church history professor, and it doesn't work with God. God means what he says. The false hope of going to heaven by our own works is the religion of the person on the street. It's flattering to feel that somehow we can contribute to our own salvation. Just try a little harder, and we'll make it in the end. The renowned preacher John Stott points out that this fearful delusion is a lie of the devil. He says it can't be done. In the end, the gap between us and God is too great. At best, we can only keep part of the law part of the time. No one can keep all the law all the time. You see, a holy God demands perfection. That's a sobering thought because we live in an imperfect world and the very idea of perfection is very difficult for us to grasp. If we ask people, do you have to be perfect to go to heaven? Most people will answer no. But the answer is yes. God is perfect and he will not allow imperfection in heaven. If we want to go to heaven, we've got to be perfect from the moment of our birth till the moment of our death. No failures in between. God's standard is absolute perfection in thought, word, and deed 100% of the time. That means we are left with only two options if we want to go to heaven. We've got to be perfect ourselves, option number one, or option number two, we've got to find someone who can be perfect in our place. And since we've all blown option number one, the only thing left for us is the second, but someone might say, you know, I can't change the past, but I can be perfect from here on out. Won't that be enough? First of all, we couldn't do that if we tried, but if we could, it still wouldn't work. Future obedience doesn't overcome past disobedience. We can never do enough in the future to cover up what we've done in the past. The result of living by the law is guaranteed frustration. The harder we try, the more we're going to fail. And at this point, we encounter the second option. Christ is 
perfect in our place. He succeeded where we failed. He obeyed where we disobeyed. He was perfect where we sinned repeatedly. He completely kept God's law and fulfilled all of its demands, and therefore he was able to die as a perfect substitute in our place, taking our punishment, bearing our sins, dying the death we should have died. And the best part of it is that when we trust him as our Savior, God declares us righteous. We are justified, we're pardoned, we're forgiven, and we are set free. See, salvation is a free gift of God received by simple faith. This is a humbling doctrine because it declares that there is absolutely nothing that we can do to save ourselves. As long as we hold on to the idea that we must contribute something to our own salvation, there's no hope for us. Verse 16 repeats that thought three times so that we won't miss it. Salvation comes to those who stop trying and start trusting in Jesus Christ. Paul says, we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus. Can you say that today? Can you say, yes, I have. I put my faith and my trust in Jesus Christ. Look at verses 17 through 19. But suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and then we are found guilty because we have abandoned the law. Would that mean that Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not, Paul says. Rather, I am a sinner. If I rebuild the old system of law, I already tore down. For, I, for when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all of its requirements so that I might live for God. Now, in verse 19, Paul offers a simple contrast that explains the heart of biblical salvation. If ever there was a person who tried to save themselves, it was the Apostle Paul. Philippians chapter 3 is a story, there's a story there that tells us about how hard he worked to earn God's favor. He was, a, as in his words, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a trained Pharisee. He was a learned doctor of the law. He was a man who was anxious to keep up every, uh, every commandment so that he would earn God's favor. He was far beyond his contemporaries in his outward obedience to God. And if salvation came by keeping the rules, Paul had it made. But then he met Jesus, and everything changed. Once Jesus transformed his life, he looked back at this old self-righteous law-keeping life and concluded that in his words, it was a pile of manure compared to the joy of knowing Christ personally. All those things that he tried to do to commend himself to God had utterly failed. They failed not because they were bad, but because they had really not changed his heart. See, outward obedience can never change human nature. Paul needed something that the law could not provide. He needed a new heart. And the law, put him to, uh, the law put him to death in the sense that it left him utterly condemned and guilty in the eyes of God. It proved him to be the sinner, but it could not provide new life. So there is this sense in which all of us must eventually admit that we are truly pathetic losers. And it's healthy to admit our sins because that admission drives us to the cross of Jesus Christ for forgiveness. What the law could not do, Christ has done for us. Rule keeping only produces guilt and leaves us dead in the road. But when Jesus Christ comes into our life, we have new life. To be alive to God means that we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for God. And once we come to Christ, we are a brand new person. The old has passed away, the new is taking over. We can never go back to the old person that we were before. We can try, but we're not going to like it. 
We won't be happy, we won't be satisfied. The law demands, but gives us no power. In the closing verses of our text, which shows us the difference that Jesus Christ makes to those who believe in him, and I invite you to read with me uh, verse 20. Uh, will you read it with me? My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is one of the most famous and maybe most loved verses in the whole Bible. But despite its popularity, most commentators remark on the difficulty of explaining exactly what it says. The words are clear and simple, but the meaning is not that easy. When Paul says, my old self has been crucified with Christ, what does he mean by that? He doesn't mean that he was literally hung on a cross when Christ was crucified. He wasn't even in Jerusalem when Jesus died. So if it's not literal crucifixion, what does he mean? I think the meaning is something like this. When we come to Christ by faith, we are joined with him in a supernatural spiritual union that is so strong that what happened to Christ some 2,000 years ago also happened to us. We might say it this way, when Christ died, I died. When Christ rose to new life, I rose to new life. We died with Christ when he died. We live because he lives and we live by faith in Jesus alone. Now, I freely admit that there's a mystical side to all of this that's hard to put into words. Those who know Christ personally understand that it's tough to say Christ lives in me, even though we, we might not be able to, follow, uh, to explain that fully to other people. This is both a positional truth of what he did for us so that we can say, you know, we also have died and rose from new, to new life with Jesus, but it's also a spiritual reality. The old self is now gone and there's this new person that's been created because Jesus now lives in our heart. The reformer John Calvin had something helpful to say at this point. He said, as long as Christ is outside of us, all that he's done for the human race is of no value to us. It's not enough to say, I attend Redeemer Church. It's not enough to say, I believe there was this person named Jesus Christ who lived 2,000 years ago. It's not enough to say, Pastor Rod baptized me. It's not enough to say, I know the songs of our faith. The question is, does he live in you? Does he live in your heart? I, we experience Christ only as we commit ourselves to him as Lord and Savior. Nothing else matters in this life if we don't have Jesus. In our heart. The Christian is a person in whom Christ lives. Does he live in your heart today? Verse 21 uh, ends this passage that we're looking at today. And Paul says, I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. If we are made right with God by the things that we do, by our works, by our good deeds, then Christ has died for nothing. If a person can save themselves, we don't need Jesus. Salvation by works is a false doctrine. The only thing we provide in, in salvation, in the whole plan of salvation, is our sin. That's what made salvation necessary. We bring our sin, Christ brings everything else. I've been asked the question, what, what about my friend or relative who's an agnostic or has a disdain for the Bible? Where will they be in the afterlife? And my response is that the eternal destiny of any person is not ours to judge, but God's. And I firmly believe that the grace of God is far greater than our sin. Suppose that in the last hours of a person's life, they sincerely 
and wholeheartedly realize their sin and cry out to God for mercy and forgiveness. If they do, I believe there's forgiveness and hope. If not, then there's no hope for any of us. We're all in the same boat. Our sin may be different in degree and kind from one person to the other, but they're all sins nonetheless. We stand in need of the mercy of God as much as the worst person that's ever lived. The wonder of the gospel is that any of us could be saved. So many of us try to earn God's favor, thinking that that's somehow noble, but it's not, it's wrong. To approach God on the basis of our good works is to say, God, you made a mistake when you sent your son to the cross. We don't need him. We can do this ourselves. See, either we try to save ourselves, or Christ saves us through his grace. Either we are made right with God because we deserve it, or God redeems us even when we don't deserve it. Are we saved by what we do or by what Christ has done for us? Thanks be to God, we don't have to wonder about the answer to that question. Christ is all that we need for salvation, both now and always. Let's pray. Maybe you're here this morning and you've said, I really never have made that kind of commitment of my life to Jesus Christ. I've never invited him in, never asked for forgiveness. And I invite you to pray a prayer along with me today. I'm going to pray a prayer, and you can pray it in your own words or in your own heart and mind. Maybe you're here today and you um, said, you know, it's been a long time since I've recommitted my life to Jesus Christ. And I invite you to pray this prayer along with me. Father, I know that I have broken your laws and my sins have separated me from you. I am truly sorry, and now I want to turn away from my past sinful life toward you. Please forgive me and help me avoid sinning again. I believe that your son, Jesus Christ, died for my sins and was resurrected from the dead, that he is alive and hears my prayer. I invite Jesus to become the Lord of my life, to rule and to reign in my heart from this day forward. Please send your Holy Spirit to help me obey you and to do your will for the rest of my life. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.